Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Joe Campbell, Professor of Philosophy in the School of Politics, Philosophy and Public Affairs at Washington State University. We're here today to talk about the Wiley Companion to Free Will, which he worked on with Dr. Mickelson and Dr. Alan White. And uh, really excited because we're going to talk about free will today. Uh, Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So kind of a, just a starting question, uh, why free will? What got you interested in that? Well, that's a good question, actually. Um, uh, you know, well, actually, there is a, an easy, uh, relatively easy answer. So my, um, you know, my first interest, I think, in philosophy was epistemology. And I was really taken by uh, skeptical arguments. And, uh, and I started out as a math major, so I'm very sort of formally oriented. And so I'm very interested in kind of, you know, the structure of, and I still am interested in the structure of epistemological skeptical arguments. Um, but I couldn't find anybody at the time. I was at, in graduate school at Arizona in the 1980s. And there were great epistemologists there, like Keith Lair and John Pollock was there and Alvin Goldman. Uh, and I, I actually studied on some level with all of them, um, but none of them wanted to work on skepticism. They all thought that the mm. question of skepticism was just kind of ridiculous or unhelpful. <laughs> they were all a little bit more practically minded. And then I just happened to be reading, you know, in a seminar with Keith Lair, uh, you know, some work by um, Peter Van Inwagen, essay on free will, and, um, you know, a lot of those arguments, and then also stuff by John Morton Fisher, and a lot of those arguments had kind of structural similarities to uh, the skeptical arguments. So, and, you know, by this time, I had been in graduate school for about six years or so. So I thought, well, I could just kind of take my, <laughs> you know, just take my knowledge of, of uh, epistemological skepticism and just apply it and, and uh, work on the consequence argument and related arguments like that. Uh, and that's kind of what I've done uh, since then. Uh, and that's got me into free will and sort of keeps me with free will. And I'm still interested in, in the connection between, um, you know, arguments, uh, uh, skeptical arguments about free will and also arguments about incompatibilism, which is a kind of skepticism um, and, and their relation to epistemological arguments. Uh, thank you. A uh, lot of fertile ground there. I mean, uh, I love that you said, uh, oh, that's an easy question to answer because I figured of all the questions you get today, that might be the only one, right? Right. Um, yes. <laughs> so, uh, 
Talk to us a little bit about, just so we can establish a, a framework, what is free will? And I, I understand there might be different camps. Maybe if you gave a couple different definitions, the like kind of the main camps of like what people hold about that. Sure. Yeah. Um, in contemporary times, and I, I might, you know, this taxonomy might be a little, uh, little unique but it's it it covers the same kind of standard ground or whatever i can explain how it's unique if you want to know but um but i think that uh you know i think all accounts of anything even close to deserving the name of free will fall back on just this this concept this ancient concept of from aristotle up to usness you know the um we think that things are are up to us, and then um, and then the debate kind of plays out. I would frame it as those you know, and this applies to contemporary philosophers too. Those who think that up to usness or sourcehood is all that is important. That um, mm-hmm. you know, as long as we're the source of our actions. You know, then we have, um, you know, the potential for free will or we have free will. Um, and then and uh, those who think that in order for an act to be um, up to a person, the person um, uh, had to have been able to do otherwise. You know, so this is where uh, the ability to do otherwise um, sort of leeway classical views of free will come in. So the, the basic distinction, I think that most contemporary philosophers who have a view on free will, think that we have free will, and, and a lot that think that we don't, either think that free will is just uh, sourcehood, that you know, a, a person acts freely, you know, uh, if and only if uh, they're the proper source of their actions, or and then that gets spelled out in a wide array of of different ways, especially yeah, yes. uh, in terms of contemporary compatibilists. And then, you know, sort of more old school leeway views or classical views uh, that in order for an act, I would frame it as in order for an act to be, you know, up to a person, the person uh, had to have done otherwise. And then you could spell that out in a, in a variety of, of different ways too. And then, you know, and then, there are in these two different camps, you do find um, both compatibilists, people who think that the, the, this notion of free will is compatible with determinism and incompatibilists uh, who think that it's not compatible. Um, and even today, like I would classify myself as kind of a classical or leeway compatibilist, but it's not a very popular view anymore. Most compatibilists have kind of gone in the, uh, you know, the source direction. But, you know, I mean, I don't know. You know, are we going to answer any philosophy questions? No. So, but, <laughs> but why, you know, why try to prove to somebody that like source is consistent with determinism? It seems clear that it is. The challenge is leeway. <laughs> free will you know and i also think that you know if you could show that leeway even leeway free will is compatible with determinism then the odds that you know that we have it <laughs> and the and the and the reasons for thinking that we don't uh i think uh increase so um 
or go away. You know, the odds that we have an increase and in, in reasons for thinking that we don't go away. But um, so that's the, you know, those are the um, the kind of general uh, camps, and we could talk about you know things like Frankfurt cases, which sort of you know, kind of cut the link between what matters about free will, which is, according to some people, most people, you know, its connection to moral responsibility. It cuts that link between moral responsibility and the ability to do otherwise, which, which you know, uh, kind of gives rise to these source views and these source compatibilist views. Um, so that's my... yeah. It's my basic take. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So just a quick clarification. When you say leeway, is that the to do otherwise? Yeah. So the okay. so Paraboom makes this distinction between leeway and source that I'm kind of leaning on there. Sometimes I use the word, you know, classical, and sometimes it is used by others too. Um, classical free will is the same for um, leeway free will. Um, there might be, you know, I'm working on ways of thinking of, uh, you know, different kinds of leeway free will. Um, and, and there is a view. It doesn't, it's not, it's not popular from a contemporary perspective, but I, I think it deserves a sort of relook. If, if you remember, like, the discussion by Locke, so, you know, um, Locke is sort of famous for just, you know, critiquing the language of free will, you know, the, the, just the concept of free will. Like Locke says, well, you know, freedom is a power and, and the will is a power. So, you know, a power can't have a power. Um, hmm. And so, you know, and the emphasis then, you know, started um, coming on action, like, uh, that we have free will to the extent in which our actions are are free in some kind of way, and and you know this is where you know the ability to do otherwise um, uh, becomes important um, too. But um, if you just think of if you just think of it in that way, then you know to have a free will is to have a will. You know, and there's a sense in which we have this in the way that Locke described it and others describe it, this, this basic capacity to either, you know, we get these suggestions for action and we can either go along with them or we could resist them. This is a sort of basic fundamental power, kind of, we could call it, say, freedom of choice or whatever, you know. And I think it's, it's possible that there could be, you know, a sort of most contemporary views tend to, move away from choice and, and move toward action, in, in part because of, of Locke's suggestions. That's sort of the irony. But I think if we kind of revisit that, I, I think Locke does sort of postulate the possibility of, of a, a kind of undeniable free choice. You know, there's a difference between jumping in the pool and, and being pushed. <laughs> uh, and right. what it is to have free will is just is to be a creature, uh, you know, uh, about which that, that makes a difference, you know, <laughs> that difference holds or something. And, um, you know, part of me wants to sort of, uh, 
sort of say that. And it's a very minimal power. It can't sort of do a lot with it. Um, I, I, I do, I, I, I criticize some contemporary philosophers because I think that sometimes they uh, maybe overly glorify free will, turn it into, when they think of it in terms of like autonomy, um, you know, it's a very robust concept. I think it's probably a concept that applies to few of us. I'm not sure I'm autonomous, according to some of these. Yeah, but I, I don't, I don't think that that has much to do with the age-old question of whether or not I have free will. You know, whether I have this other kind of uh, capacity, which is certainly you know honorable, worthy, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> it's a power, a complex, you know, autonomy, different conceptions, but. Um, you know, I, I think if you think in more, you know, uh, simpler terms, I think, uh, you know, you, you can make a better case for, you know, uh, for us having free will, which I do think is, is kind of important. I guess I'm, I'm kind of a, a Strassonian at heart in the sense that I do think that our thoughts about freedom are kind of worked into the fabric of, you know, how we think about things, how we think about human relations. Um, I, I think it's a lot harder, if not impossible, to sort of do away with free will talk than, than some free will skeptics uh, suggest that it is. But, and I also don't think that the arguments, uh, you know, the skeptical arguments are as good as, as, as people uh, tend to think that they are. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, even as I'm listening to you, I wrote a paper on uh, free will and determinism in high school. It was not a very good paper. I'll just be upfront about that. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I didn't know, you know. The but fact I that do, you were thinking uh, about I, it in high school is incredible. <laughs> so I, I had they had a, an anthology at the library of different essays. I think Inwagen might have been in it, but uh, I remember reading. Um, uh, yeah, as you're talking about autonomy, and I think what gets people's hackles up is this question of moral responsibility, right? Um, so mm -hmm. when you are faced, because I read uh, an, an address to prisoners in a Chicago jail, I think it's called, by B.F. Skinner, um, mm. in which he basically says to them, it's not your fault you're here. None of you. Like, we are all merely products of our environment. And I think that goes to your point about like free will is literally written into just our discourse. It's almost impossible to get rid of. Um, what do you think of that sentiment? This idea that we are not like, not even morally responsible, not even responsible for our actions in that kind of sense. Yeah. I think that, um, I mean, I think it's, I think it's interesting um, here, here's an interesting observation before I, uh, I answer that is that, you know, just the, about getting back to the comparison between like, uh, skeptical arguments, uh, epistemological skeptical arguments and, and, um, and kind of arguments for free will skepticism, because we're really in the terrain now talking about like the possibility of, of free will skepticism, which would also lead to skepticism about moral responsibility. Um, especially on the way that most people just think of free will as whatever it is that we need, you know, the freedom relevant condition, you know, necessary for moral responsibility. 
Um, but uh, most contemporary philosophers don't think that the epistemological skepticism argument is good. And, and there are very few people, even somebody like Barry Stroud, who, who comes off as a skeptic and writes supportive of skepticism, is not a skeptic. I heard on a, on a podcast, uh, I think Philosophy Bites podcast, where he said, no, I'm not a skeptic. He's just sort of interested in trying to, you know, present the, the position. But there are free will skeptics. Um, and, you know, and if these arguments are, and I do think that there are kind of similarities between the arguments, um, you know, these skeptical arguments, uh, if these arguments are indeed similar, it's just, it's interesting to me why, you know, there are so many people who just have these attitudes about the epistemological arguments that they're nonsense or that the challenge is to find out what's wrong with them. But the free will arguments that there's really something, you know, uh, that you could say about it or or just, you know, mm. the general attitude that people have about philosophy is, well, you, you can't answer anything in philosophy. But yet when we turn to free will, <laughs> there are so many people who feel like, well, no, you can answer quite a lot. You could tell that free will is incompatible with determinism. You know, you could tell that we don't have free will according to some kinds of views. And um, I just find it really interesting, you know, and if you look at the history of philosophy, of course, these attitudes change. You know, there are times where epistemological skepticism is taken seriously and free will skepticism is not taken so seriously. You know, I'm not sure what it says about the contemporary times, you know, uh, there. But, you know, but there are just a slew of, of issues that you have to deal with, you know, that come up. I mean, the one that comes up uh, just foremost is, is just the issue of, of prison reform, you know, if free will skepticism is true, um, it, it seems that in our legal system, this concept, uh, it, Clarence Darrow, you know, crime, its cause and its treatment, um, he talks about uh, this, the sense in which um, the concept of moral responsibility is embedded in our legal system. You know, something is criminal to the extent in which you know, uh, it, it, it's not just something bad, but it's something that um, is intention that you intentionally <laughs> do bad. <laughs> um, uh, so there, there's, uh, you know, the characteristic of, of blameworthiness is kind of um, worked into criminality. Um, so the idea that you could just separate you know, blame and the moral responsibility part and then leave, you know, the criminal, our criminal justice system intact. That just seems, you know, silly. But of course, there are a lot of people that are, that are well on this, that are thinking about these, these kinds of issues. And, and then there's a whole class of, of free will skeptics, people like Dirk Paraboom and, and Greg Caruso, um, you know, uh, I'll call them uh, hard indeterminists or whatever, um, who who try to suggest that well maybe we can model the criminal justice system on um, you know uh, uh, cases of, of disease or whatever uh, where we have to incarcerate people 
uh, with diseases so that it doesn't uh, communicate the quarantine model, I think it's uh, sometimes called. I think the paraboom calls it the incapacitation model. The idea is all we have to do is incapacitate certain kinds of criminals, and we could justify that for reasons of self-defense and stuff, and, and uh, we don't have to get into the kind of retributivist justifications that lie behind um, moral responsibility. But the problem with uh, the, the quarantine model, or actually if you just think of it in terms of, of um, trying to justify, um, not in a retributive sense, but in a consequentialist uh, sort of sense, um, you know, if, if something goes wrong, uh, you you know, the thing to do if you if you want to make the world the best place is just lock up the worst person that you know. <laughs> you have to lock up the person that did it. <laughs> you know, the consequences are going to be better. Um, to, but so there's no connection even to you know the doing of the act on a kind of consequentialist view of punishment, or or even if you're just thinking of sort of self-defense reasons uh, for punishment. Um, if, you know, just as in the case of quarantine, it, it's not people with the disease that you're justified in locking up. It's people that potentially have the disease uh, that you're justified in locking up. I mean, there's a whole, ah. that, a whole terrain that kind of gets opened up with this and just the idea that it's going to be some sort of easy fix. Um, you know, but fundamentally my problem with free will skepticism in this context is just, um, you know, you could look at the prison population and you could point to people in the prison population and it seems like they are being unfairly punished <laughs> either because they mm. didn't do it <laughs> or because, um, you know, whatever I, I or, or maybe there uh, are mitigating circumstances that were not taken into consideration, so the punishment is is far too severe. But yet, you know, the, what the free will skeptic has, you know, when they look at the problem of, of contemporary punishment is just this solution for everybody. Nobody deserves to be there. I want to say this hmm. some of them deserve to be there far less <laughs> than others do. And I, I don't see how you, you, you can't really make those, those kinds of distinctions would seem very intuitive <laughs> um, without uh, something like, you know, this, this old-fashioned free will framework, you know, that, we've, that we're used to. So I think we're giving up a lot more when we give up free will than, than people have a tendency to, to think. That idea of what's being like, uh, of mitigation, right? Like if, if you don't have free will, what's, what's being mitigated, right? Right. <laughs> yes, know? that's exactly yeah. right. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. The concept of mitigation is meaningful, like reasons for mitigation. I do believe that there are reasons for mitigation of, of punishment, but that can only be the case if, if there is free will. That's right. Yeah. I, I, I did want to, just because you, you've touched on it briefly, and I think it's an interesting uh, path I, I want to make sure we cover, uh, kind of what's the, the history of this problem? Uh, but then you also mentioned in your introduction uh, to this volume 
about how it's feathering out into uh, different disciplines. And uh, so if you can kind of just in broad strokes, what is the history of this, uh, this free will problem and how is it becoming, would, would it say, would it be fair to say that it's becoming more interdisciplinary? I mean, you mentioned prison reform and it definitely feels like we are now straying into, uh, I mean, you're at the school of politics and public affairs. Like it makes sense, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. And you know, that is really interesting too, because this is something I would not have Yes. When I was in graduate school studying free will, like which is historically like the most armchair of of philosophical issues. And and also, you know, I mean, even philosophers are annoyed by problems of free will. (laughs) Philosophers have the same attitude towards people who work on free will that that non-philosophers have about philosophers. (laughs) It's like, what are you talking about? You know, what are you doing? And um, but it is in many ways a sort of paradigm of of um, interdisciplinary work in philosophy and, and also, you know, the paradigm of kind of uh, work in the social sciences and, and even, you know, neurosciences connected to free will. You know, mm. I mean, I, I mean, I right. think it has a lot to do with, I think, the growth of of our understanding of the mind and, and the, the growth of our interest in issues in philosophy of mind, like consciousness, other kinds of things like that. I think the free will, you know, fits, uh, you know, comfortably sort of in that family of, of kind of issues from a kind of contemporary perspective. Um, but you also asked a little about the, about the history, my, uh, dissertation, um, was called the logic of freedom. And what I tried to do was uh, sort of trace the, um, the various, you know, different problems of free will. Like, so in, in the beginning, back in Aristotle's time, you know, there was like the sea battle argument or the stoic master arguments, which were problems for what some people call it logical fatalism or, sort of, um, uh, yeah, I don't like the term logical fatalism because they're not really logical principles. They're going to be principles like bivalence, like propositions are either true or false. They only have two truth values. But, you know, that's not like a logical truth. It's not like, you know, that is the consequence of a result of a truth table. It's It kind of it's a metalogical issue. It kind of goes into building the truth table or whatever. So, um, right, right. Still, right. it's 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 a kind of you know um, you know logical. Uh, it, it, it's a problem for free will, independent of any you know theses about the nature of the world, just in terms of our you know lo- basic logical principles that we might use, and then we move on into you know, the issue of divine foreknowledge and free will, you know, and um, issues about religion. And, and then, you know, comes uh, um, the Renaissance and, and Newtonian mechanics. And then we move on to the problem of free will and determinism. We have like worries about biology and free will. And, you know, so there is this, there's always this sort of, of uh, issue. And I think, I've always 
tried to wonder whether there's a core issue that sort of permeates uh, through all of these problems, you know, or whether they're separate, mm. whether they're separate, um, distinct problems. Um, and, you know, and people have different attitudes about this. So, um, you know, uh, John Martin Fisher, he thinks that they're separate problems. He thinks that some of them are a lot more worrisome than, than others. And, and it, you know, informs his, his kind of, uh, his view about free will. Um, but then the other thing that's, that's interesting, and I think that this is, this, you know, this next observation kind of really shows how it starts to open up. You, you can see the interdisciplinary nature of free will, though, in just what I've said so far. I mean, right. people that are interested in religion, interested in science, you know, interested in logic, you know, all of these things might be a threat to your free will. So, um, you know, you could, you could kind of come at an interest in free will from a variety of different directions, a variety of different kinds of worldviews. But then in contemporary times now, and, and, you know, I really have to thank my co-writer, Christian uh, Mickelson, um, for this observation uh, that comes out in, in the introduction, but just the impact of um, luck on, um, on these thoughts, like how we can, we can rethink a lot of these problems and newer problems just in terms of the concept of, of luck. You know, so if you just think of luck as, um, you know, as being, um, you know, whatever is beyond human control, uh, and, you know, in the, in the, in the classic document, uh, Moral Luck by uh, Thomas uh, Nagel, he talks about, you know, four different kinds of luck. And actually, uh, Kristen, <laughs> in, in a paper of hers, she uh, whittles it down. In her paper, Free Will, Self-Creation, and the Paradox of Moral Luck, she whittles it down to, um, to just three uh, different um, kinds of uh, luck. But so there's a, a kind of what she calls causal relational luck. And this is where the problem of free will and determinism comes in. So you can think of free will and determinism as a kind of, as, as one manifestation of a problem of, of luck, a problem of causal luck. Um, you know, the past and the laws of determinism is true, uh, have an impact on, on everything, but we have no control over the past and the laws. So we have no uh, control over anything. And then another way in which causality enters is, you know, the classic cases of moral luck, you know, drunk driver type cases. You have two people, they're both, they both had too much to drink. They're driving too fast. Uh, and in one case, uh, a person steps right in front of the car, uh, and they're guilty of manslaughter. In the other case, um, you know, there is no, uh, there's no harm, um, no explicit harm, at least. Uh, and, and so it, there's, uh, you know, um, there's a kind of consequence of your behavior that you have no control over, um, or there mm. might be circumstantial luck, circumstances about which uh, you have no control, or constitutive luck. 
you know, uh, facts about your character, your constitution um, that you were just born with over which you, you have no, um, no control. And so um, then the question kind of arises, like when we ask, like, well, you know, in all these sort of worries about free will, what's, you know, what's doing the work, you know? And, you know, if you think of the older problems, I mean, one attitude might be, um, well, the, the problems are not all the same. And what's really doing the work is, is causality. The determinism problem is, you know, is, is just bad. And then you get, you know, you go down this kind of like uh, uh, incompatibilist um, sort of path thinking about it like that. But when you look at the diversity of issues that might come up in, in luck, you know, the problem kind of changes. So, you know, um, I mean, Mealy, I think it, I think he's sort of following on, on Van Inwagen um, in, in an argument where he, Van Inwagen's mind argument, he tries to show that, that in the, that, you know, free will is problematized even in the case of, of indeterminism. Because we have what what Miele now calls uh, present luck, you know, just you know, just the facts about the moment of decision <laughs> are kind of set, you know. <laughs> once once we're making that decision, there's there's not a lot of like play that we can have. Most of the decisions that we make, we make for reasons, and and given the reasons, there's a sort of you know tendency um, for something to. Uh, happen and then if if um you know if you go the libertarian route there well you know you can have these two different scenarios where you know you in the actual world you in the possible world you have the exact same characteristics every single fact about you is the same but you end up making these two different um choices and and then you know even the 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 choice, the decision itself um, seems to be uh, something that is lucky, you know. And then Neil, Neil Levy kind of, he thinks if you combine the, the sort of worries that we have about um, constitutive luck with these worries that Miele presents about present luck, um, then, you know, uh, there's not really, <laughs> there's no free will. You could show that there's no free will in that case. And now we haven't talked about the truth or falsity of determinism in any of that, um, in any of that conversation. So, um, I mean, one thing I think that's interesting that I, and I, I'm totally in sympathy with, that gets revealed with the move towards free will skepticism is this idea that it was never determinism in the first place. It was always something else, <laughs> right? Something more mysterious yeah. that was sort of um, robbing us of our free will or something. You know, Levy calls himself a compatibilist, even though he's also a free will skeptic. He, he thinks exactly. we don't have any free will, but it's not because of determinism. It's, it's possible <laughs> that we could have free will you know, in a deterministic world. It's just we don't hap happen to have it in this world, but it's for other reasons, like it re really just reasons about our, our cognitive makeup, how we make decisions, you know. Do um, you, uh, and, and maybe this is uh, 
just going in a completely wrong direction. Um, even as you were talking about, um, uh, what does, you know, when you, even you talk about the causality problem, what role does our, um, so a capacity for self-reflection play into that, our, our capacity for self-awareness or, um, I actually had, a not it's a it's a tangential it's not exactly related to this discussion but very like similar in some ways with dr Catherine malibu on Kant's transcendental so very similar in that way of like this uh this self-shaping ability um you know of course that's maybe that's kind of begging the question you know is it really self-shaping but uh how do you how do you see our capacity for self-awareness or self-reflection uh how does that figure into these discussions of causality. Yeah. Um, boy, that's a good question. I, I, you know, now are you, let me just ask a, a question of clarification first, but are you talking about like maybe um, what Leibniz called apperception, like our ability to kind of uh, reflect on our conscious experiences or something? You know, so for Leibniz, there are like three stages of monads. They're, the first stage, they just have perception, like input-output. Then they have consciousness. Then they have apperception, which is sort of awareness of consciousness. Self-conscious awareness, I guess. Is that mm -hmm. what you're talking about or no? So <laughs> I, I, I'm going to say I think so. I, I'm, I'm pulling from Kant, and I'm sure, like, I know Kant uses apperception, and so I'm assuming he got it from Leibniz. But to right. say <laughs> that Kant's idea of apperception is the same as Leibniz, I'm sure there's some twist that he did to it. But I think we're in the general ballpark, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that... Um, no, I think it's... I think it is... I think it's, it's really relevant. I mean, it'd be hard to explain the various different uh, ways... In which now one thing, um, so I I had a sabbatical last year, and I actually have a, a draft of this book where I'm I'm trying to, you know, uh, put some of these uh, some of these things together. But the um, and while I was doing some research uh, there, I came across this book by Michael Freda. Um, called a concept of free will, and um, and so what he was interested in is where did the concept of free will come from, and and what is it? And he essentially argues, he doesn't. He thinks the concept of free will is kind of essentially connected to choice, um, so it doesn't exist for him in the time of Aristotle and Plato, and it doesn't come about until the, you know, the Greeks, the Roman Stoics, like Epictetus, he thinks is the first, I think he's influenced by Cicero. Um, but even Cicero doesn't quite have it. And it, it does get at this, this idea of, um, you know, the power that I mentioned before, the, this power of choice that we have of, of sort of like either going with the flow, because, you know, this is all working off a stoic concept for the stoics. We're constantly 
you know, being influenced to act. <laughs> uh, like we're always receiving these kinds of uh, this information instructing us to do certain kinds of things. And the only power that we have is, you know, to go with it or to, or to go against it, you know. Now, in the context of, of you know, this time, which is right around the, the time of, of Christ, um, you have, or right after the time of Christ, you have these, uh, you know, three different, uh, you know, worldviews present. You know, you've got these pagans, and you've got these Stoics, and you've got these Christians. Um, but what they all share is a certain kind of fatalism or a certain belief that things are, are faded. They're either faded by nature, you know, or they're faded by God or some combination of both in the case of the right. Stoics. Um, but so the worry was not a worry that we think of traditionally when we think of the problem of determinism. The worry wasn't about um, like whether or not we had the specific ability to do otherwise that, you know, given everything or whatever, we could have done one thing or another because we don't have any control over the world. The world is, is completely controlled by, out, by forces outside of us. So what was the concern then? Well, the concern was whether or not we could flourish, you know, given. So it was really a worry about, you know, um, situational or circumstantial or constitutive luck, you know, uh, about, you know, um, if we were born with certain handicaps, could we still flourish? And there are different conceptions of flourishing. For flourishing, for Christians, means going to heaven, or it means something different for the Stoics and something different for the pagans. But the idea, so there's this, you know, free will has always been connected with these, you know, higher levels of, of freedom, even when you think of it in terms of, you know, when you move into a sort of political context where you get this di distinction between like negative freedoms, like our rights or, uh, or positive freedoms, you know, positive liberties, um, you know, you can think of autonomy or something like that is, is in the kind of positive kind of liberty, um, liberty camp. So, uh, you know, and I think, you know, what I want to try to do, <laughs> you know, I think the, the, where free will should kind of move <laughs> is kind of a, away from the sort of unnatural, incompatibilist, contra-causal sort of way of, of, of thinking of it and just think of it in terms of developments of, of certain kinds of capacities. You know, so you could think of, of like uh, immoral action as a kind of imperfection. There's something that goes wrong, you know, um, and, and in a sense, you know, the, the, and, and the, you know, the imperfections might be caused by, you know, mitigating circumstances or, or, or something like that. But um, so if you think of, of just, you know, just the capacity of self-reflection and developing on that, you know, what you could do with that in terms of, of uh, 
helping to get give somebody more control over their their life in a, in a sort of by reflecting on a variety of <laughs> on the right kinds of things or whatever you know and and you know we all have our our different stories about about how to achieve flourishing or how to achieve autonomy or or something there are a variety of different you know stories that are are sort of um that are kind of out there but I think that they all concern, you know, the concern is not developing some kind of ability to act contra-causally. The concern is, is with, um, you know, uh, developing the right kinds of capacities, uh, developing the right kinds of dispositions, um, and, uh, you know, other things like that. You know, when I was listening to this, I, I, I mentioned before, I'm listening to Clarence Darrow um, uh, on crime, its, its cause and, and its treatment. And he's really advocating the idea that we start treating criminals like criminality is a disease. You know, he says crime has a cause or reasons why people partake in criminal behavior. And if we have a prison system, <laughs> um, it should work towards, like, in the same way that hospitals work towards trying to end disease. Right. <laughs> you know, it should work towards trying to end crime. But that's not how the prison system works. And it's getting even worse because now prison has these, you know, financial incentives. It's, it's, it's gone, you know, it's been privatized. So, um, mm. You know, but yeah, so I, I I think the key towards, you know, freedom and also developing the kind of, you know, character that's conducive to moral responsive behavior uh, is in, um, you know, the developing of, of capacities in, in some sense. And we have the technical wherewithal now to figure out you know, what the important capacities are and, and also how to uh, develop them. <laughs> are we uh, in the realm of, uh, of virtue here? Because it almost sounds, I mean, if we talk about in free will terms, uh, the idea that a lot of times we're concerned about moral choices and uh, we make these snap reactions, right? And it doesn't feel free. It feels like it's just conditioned into us. You know, if something happens really fast and we respond morally and Aristotle's kind of reaction to that is that, you know, a lot of the morality like is the building of habits. So it wasn't then that you made that choice. It was what kind of character you built up to that point. And so as you talk about developing these capacities, are we, are we talking in some ways about not that it, I understand there's some difference between capacity and virtue, but it seems like there is kind of a, at least a tenuous thread between that development. Am I tracking with that? Yeah, no, I think there's there's certainly a connection there. And of course, you know, with something like virtue theory, you know, there are a lot of different ways in which, you know, which it could go. I mean, one, you know, one problem, and this criticism comes up in um in the Freda book, uh you know, where he's sort of tracking the you know, the uh the concept of free will. And um, and he claims that Aristotle doesn't have the concept of free will, and part <laughs> of the reason is okay. because there's 
Well, the thing is, is that he doesn't, he doesn't care about that issue mm. that the Stoics that the Stoics cared about, and also that we kind of care about in contemporary times. That the libertarian clearly cares about whether or not we have the specific ability to do otherwise. Meaning, you know, at a time, you know, given all the facts of that, to hold hold fix all the facts and the laws at that time. You know, could we have done one thing or another? You know, which requires a kind of contra-causal, what I would still call a kind of contra-causal freedom. Um, uh, I I don't think that you know because, um, you know, once you, <laughs> you know, once you get the well, after a while for Aristotle, um, you know, you're just locked in. <laughs> you're you're. Yeah. You are your virtues. Your actions are just a consequence of your virtues or vices. There's, and there's really not much that you could do, you know, um, about that. And so, and my feel, my, you know, my own feeling, and this, maybe this reveals too much about my personality. It's, <laughs> it's sort of an indication of like how, I don't know, I just look at myself, my life. I'm just not a virtuous person. I just... I do the wrong <laughs> all the time. I haven't developed the best of habits. You know, I, I, I should be doing things that, that I'm not doing. I, I just feel, you know, but yet I feel like, you know, I still have a chance or something. There's still sort yeah. of hope or, or, or something like that, you know. So I, I think that, like, you know, that idea of, um, you know, uh, there's always chance for improvement, you know? Right. One thing I'm struck by with respect to contemporary prison, because I did a little bit of research. I worked on a project related to this a while back, and I did a little bit of research on um, different programs that they have in prison. So, And there are a variety of them. And there are programs, you know, where the prisoners get to do art, there are even programs where prisoners just hang art on the wall, <laughs> you know, or programs mm. where they um, they work uh, they work with plants and and programs where they kind of get into the you know the science of it um, too, so they they are able to learn some some skills and stuff. There are obviously education programs and in, in various you can get degrees, you can take classes. Here's the thing, every single one that I found out about, the recidivism rate was lower <laughs> in each right. case. In each case. You know, I just think the idea of, you know, I mean, it's one thing as to whether or not punishment is, uh, a, you know, a deterrent to future crime or something. But what, you know, what would the opposite of deterrent be? You know, like what, what if punishment actually causes future crime, which it does, mm. right? Because yeah. the chances of going back to prison once you get in are a lot better <laughs> than they were yeah. before you got in. Okay, that's problematic. I mean, we're not... We're not taking into account what the causes are of these things. And I think part of that is because we have this conception of human action that it's contra-causal. That if we think of it as having causes, then we're, 
jeopardizing it or something. Um, you know, and, and, but that is certainly locked into the idea that, that whatever the threats to free will are, determinism is among them. And I, I think that, you know, I think we have reason to think, no, it's not determinism. We don't really know exactly what it is, <laughs> but whatever it is, whatever these threats are, um, determinism doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, uh, the right one. And, you know, and, you know, it leaves open the possibility. And this is, you know, this is what I'm exploring in this, you know, in this book I'm working on now, that there might be some logical core to all of these problems, some sort of, um, you know, basic, you know, core set of assumptions that uh, either just keep popping up when we reflect on, on these on these uh these issues you know well um, it sounds like i'd need to have you back that's what it sounds like but um <laughs> the um that because that's a fascinating idea and if you can bring it to that that's um it, it is it's a very slippery and even as you've mentioned multiple times there are multiple issues there does seem to be some thread through all of them but what that is uh very difficult to untangle. Um, but uh, forgive me for kind of uh, butting in here, but I did, you, you mentioned it at the very beginning and it has been stuck in my notes because I really want to hear this. What are Frankfurt cases? Oh, okay. Yeah, so, um, and these are, I think, really important and, and they fit into the, you know, discussion, these problems in a in a wide array of of ways. But just to give some some um, backup. So like the uh, Frankfurt cases came out in a paper by uh, Harry Frankfurt, 1969. Um, so it was a while ago and they are kind of in the free will literature, sort of what the Gettier cases are in epistemology, which I think also came out in 1969, if I'm not mistaken, but around the, the year the, for the, that, apparently. Yeah. So they, and so it's, but the setup is that at the time was this kind of, you know, classical conception of free will and moral responsibility, this idea that free will required the specific ability to do otherwise, um, and uh, that uh, free will was necessary for moral responsibility. So the specific ability to do otherwise is necessary for moral responsibility. And so the Frankfurt uh, cases um, present a challenge to this idea. Um, and the way that they go is you, you set up a case in which um, somebody has the potential of being manipulated, but they're not actually manipulated. So suppose that, you know, uh, you got, you know, Jones and, and uh, black, I think these are names that were are from the <laughs> from the Frankfurt case. But I'm not going to use the, the that actual example. But it's something like that. Suppose that you know Jones is uh, and Black conspire to do a bank robbery, um, and Black, who happens to be a neuroscientist, is 
not sure that Jones is going to go through with this. So to ensure this, he has this device implanted in, in Jones's brain. And the device works uh, in this way. And this is from a, an example by um, Paraboom that, um, you know, if he was, if Jones was going to back out of the plan, he would engage in some moral reasoning, say. And um, the device would, you know, measure or register the moral reasoning, and then it would click in and uh, turn him into a, you know, a robot, and he would just, against his will, uh, rob the bank. Um, as it turns out, um, Jones goes along willfully, okay? So it seems, since it was an action caused by his own, you know, willful uh, actions, it seems that Jones is morally responsible, but yet he couldn't have done otherwise. He would have robbed the bank either way. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So, um, and now, you know, I will point out, this is a, a, a paper I'm working on right now, so it's not something I have in print. But I do think that this, if you think of, of like just this conception of free choice as sort of doing something willfully or resisting, that power is still there in the, in the Frankfurt case. <laughs> you know, um, he can resist. I mean, that, that's part of the setup is that he can decide to engage in moral reasoning and that will, you know, make it so that he's not the you know, responsible for it. That would certainly be a mitigating circumstance. So even though he can't, he has no control over which action he does, he does have kind of an element of control over whether he's blameworthy for that action or not. You know, like if he knew the device was implanted and he didn't want to, he couldn't bring himself to actually do it, he would just let the device, you know, take over and he'd, he'd be out of it or something. He wouldn't be blamed for it. Um, so even though, you know, the action is, uh, is sort of set in stone, whether the action is blameworthy or not seems to still be up for grabs. It's part of the, it's part of the, uh, you know, it's built into the example. So, um, right, right. but in, in any event, I mean, this, you know, uh, I've given other kinds of responses to this and, and most people still, think that these Frankfurt cases, and of course you can change them, you can make them more elaborate and, and uh, most people are quite persuaded by these Frankfurt um, cases and that's a big reason toward you know, why I would say that most contemporary philosophers are kind of on the source view. They go away from leeway view, specific ability to do otherwise as being relevant um, and, it, and, and move towards the, the source view. Got because it, it's up to it's the question is whether it's up to uh Jones, not whether he could have done otherwise, right? Yeah, so yeah, so a popular version of this is by Carolina Satorio, um, and she uh, I think she calls it like and it, it is inspired by the work of, of Fisher, but um, she calls it an actual sequence you know, uh, thing. And so the general idea is that, that, you know, alternative possibilities 
aren't sort of uh, relevant to the kind of, you know, freedom and, and moral responsibility characteristics or whatever, the action. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's all, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not completely convinced, you know, uh, I've, I've never been completely convinced by these, uh, these Frankfurt examples, but they are, they do present a, they do present a challenge, um, uh, about, uh, and, and also the other exciting thing is, is, you know, I mean, I, I do favorably look toward the, you know, leeway free will. I, I, I'm favorably inclined to think of that. But again, the, you know, philosophy, what do we know? <laughs> uh, and it really has opened up. These source views are interesting. I mean, they've opened up a, a wide array of avenues of sort of looking at, at free will. And by its very nature, because it's not wedded to leeway free will, by its very nature, it doesn't have the same kinds of problems um, that, you know, these leeway views have. Of course, you know, if again, these problems are, are caused by, you know, something deeper, maybe it does have these problems that are just harder to reveal, <laughs> in uh, that case, which is yes. my suspicion. But, um, but still... The, the fact that the problems are not on the surface allows people to sort of explore a lot of different, you know, avenues of, of uh, you know, of, of, of these, uh, these kinds of questions and these issues. Uh, and these are avenues that, that wouldn't have been open, you know, uh, had it not been for Frankfurt and, and the work of Fisher, too. Yeah, I well. Dr. Campbell, one, let me say thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, if you could leave our audience with one takeaway, not necessarily a summary of everything, because I think that <laughs> that's not a fair question, but what's a, what's a takeaway you would leave for our audience today as they think more about uh, what we've talked about today? I think that there have been a lot of really positive movements in free will research um, that are exciting and that will make it uh, continue to be an exciting and important um, area. Uh, and, and I think they're connected to a lot of the things that we were talking about, both the idea that um, problems about free will are kind of related to these issues of luck or, and luck is just things that are beyond human control. And there's a lot more that is potentially beyond human control uh, than what comes out in these, these, even these classic stories, whether we think of the religious ones or the scientific ones, but these determinism, predeterminism sort of related stories. And, um, you know, but in, in, in challenging uh, free will in these, this wider away of race that we have right now, um, we also have the opportunities and we have a lot more resources too, um, to develop responses to these, uh, particular problems. And the problems are less general. They're more particularized, um, you know, like about the, you know, the constitution of, of particular agents, you know, what do we do about the fact that people are born with a certain kind of constitution, um, does that lead to 
mitigating, you know, uh, factors in 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 uh, in these considerations sort of from the get go. See, that's what I want to say. Ultimately, is that you know, um, you know, whether the arguments work or not, whether they extinguish, <laughs> you know, the 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 concept of free will. Uh, there's, you know, there's still this, you know, we have this, you know, this this power of <laughs> of resisting or going along with the flow or 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 resisting and. And you could look at at history of of people who put that power to uh you know uh to great work so um yeah, I think I'll just leave it at that that's a yeah no i I think that's a great way to to end what we've been talking about. It's been a real pleasure thank you all right, hey, thank you.